all you have. You are now tuned in to Marcus Rays. You just sat back and ready to play. Let me take your thoughts far, far away. Now let's hear what Darth Vader has to say. We would be honored if you would join us. Greetings, Far, Far Away family. It's Kyle, your star-hopping narrator, beaming directly into your ears from the most epic Star Wars show on the web, Star Wars Audio Archives, your express ship to the wonders of the High Republic. Prepare to engage your hyperdrives for part nine of our epic journey, because after the twists and turns we navigated in part eight, this next adventure will be out of this world. I'm as charged as a blaster in a bounty hunter's grip, ready to plunge into the galaxy and face the unknown. Then let's get right to it. Hyperspace. The new elite. You guys ready to ride the storm? <laughs> Kossif shouted. He held up a bulb of smash. Bright blue and soft, with a slim nozzle at one end. Designed to make the drug accessible to just about every type of gas exchange anatomy in the galaxy. Whether you had a nose, a trunk, stomata, a proboscis, or just some weird hole in your face, you could use a smash bulb. Which was good, because his team had all those options and more. The crew of the new elite lifted their own bulbs. Anticipatory grins on every face. Music vibrated every surface. Big, booming wreck funk where every instrument the bands used was made from the reforged wreckage of crashed starships. Cossive took a good long puff. And boom! His mind lit up. Everything was sharper, brighter. He could do this. He could. He could do this. He could do it all. He watched as his crew did the same. A few ran the smash straight into the gas filters of their masks. A neat trick that intensified the effects. Saw the energy ripple through them. That charge, that rush, that sugar candy hit that made everything glow and buzz and hiss. He dropped his empty bulb on the deck and grinned. <laughs> Feels good, don't it? He shouted, spitting the words. Feels like the night hill, right? <laughs> His people roared. Some were twitching in time to the music. Some were just twitching. Okay. <laughs> You'll enjoy. Give me a minute. But then take the rounder. We need to be sharp for this. Let's ride the storm. Not let the storm ride us, yeah? By way of example, you needed to provide an example from time to time as a leader. He reached into his tunic and pulled out a small orange and yellow pill. He held it up, showing it to his crew, then popped it into his mouth and bit down. Almost immediately, the smash high took on a new swirling quality, like waves in a storm-tossed sea. Huge, powerful, you needed to watch yourself, but these waves could surf. It reminded him of hyperspace a little. Not the normal kind, but the weird roads of Martian Rose Pass. Kossif turned to look out the bridge's viewport, watching as the hyperlane rolled on past. Tunnels built from endless ribbons of light, 
many colors, washing and tossing and weaving into one another. There was some meaning there, but he wasn't smart enough to figure it out. He had no idea where the paths came from. Marcion Rowe was cagey about it, never giving too many details. But his father had been the same way. Kossif sometimes wanted to find out the secret at Blaster Point, or even better, at the edge of a blade. But the Rows were not stupid people. Or at least Asgar hadn't been. He knew what he had with the paths, and knew people would want it. And while Marcion Rowe wasn't his father, not even close, he'd inherited all the safeguards Asgar set up. The Gaze Electric. Those gnarly guard droids he used. It was hard to get close to Marcion. He'd made it clear that the paths themselves had their own safeguards, too. If he died, so would they. That hadn't happened when Asgard died. But then again, Marcion didn't have a son to whom he could pass the family business. But it wasn't just the starships and murder droids protecting Marcion Rowe. It was also the structure his father had insisted the Nihil adopt when he brought them the paths so many years ago. Before that, the group was much smaller. Barely a gang, really. It kept its operations to a tiny corner of the rim, close to Fool's Shroud by Belsavis, pulling off whatever little jobs it could. Asgaro had shown up one day and offered them the paths in exchange for a third of the take of any operations that used them. But that wasn't all. He wanted a vote, too. Any jobs that used the paths required a full vote of the three Tempest Runners, plus the Eye. And any tie vote went the Eye's way. It didn't seem like such a big deal at the time. It meant that he, Pan Eta, and Lorna D were always against one another, in a way always courting the eye's favor to get paths. In theory, they could all team up to try to go after Marcion. There was too much bad blood. Most of the time, Kossif could barely be in the same room with Lorda D and Pan Eta, much less contemplate sharing the throne with them. Marcion was all alone, and should be completely vulnerable. But somehow he wasn't. He was protected by the system his much smarter father had set up. It was annoying, but it worked. Hell, Kasev had copied a lot of Asgard's ideas for his own Tempest. Kasev had three storms up at the top of his Tempest hierarchy. Gravin, Delix, and Wetbub. They all wanted to be him, but they would never work together to get rid of him, because then none of them would be the Tempest Runner. They'd still just be three storms sharing power. <laughs> yep, it was a good little system. All three of those storms were on the bridge of the new elite, and they'd all blown smash right when he did. He didn't know if they'd all taken the rounder, or if the clouds and strikes in their crews had either. But that was all right. A little edge wasn't such a bad thing. The Nihil were all about edge. It wouldn't be a problem as long as everyone did what they were told. And everyone would. That was the other thing that made the Nihil such a great system. 
Even if this particular truth was hidden down deep, making it hard to see unless you were near the top of the organization. On the surface, the Nine Hill were all about freedom, about breaking away from the galaxy's systems of control. Forget the Republic, forget the Huts, forget anything but doing what you wanted, when you wanted. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That was the sales pitch. How they got people to join up. Ride the storm, baby. Ride that storm. But once you were a night hill, you still had a boot on your chest. Even if you didn't always feel it because of all the burn parties and smash and the thrill of taking what you wanted when you wanted. You still had to do exactly what your bosses above you said and the bosses above them. If you didn't, at best, you didn't get your share of the rule of three. At worst, you got a vibroblade in your neck. Or you got thrown out of the Great Hall the hard way. Everyone had to stay in line. Everyone paid their price. <laughs> well, everyone but Marcion Rowe and the Tempest Runners. Him, Lorna D, and that flashy brute Pan Ata. Did he even realize how stupid he looked? A Doatin trying to be fashionable? <laughs> anyway, the Nihil was just another form of control. An engine designed to roll credits up to the people at the top of the organization. Yeah, good little system. Kossiv surveyed his crew, the upper echelons of his Tempest. Gravin, Wetbub, and there was Delix right up front. Her one organic eye gleaming from the smash. <laughs> oh, yeah. She definitely hadn't taken that rounder. And their crew was arranged behind them. Here's what we're gonna do, Gossip said. We're gonna string these chicks along. Make them pay us so much money, there won't be more than two credits left in the whole blasting system. We're gonna take them for everything they've got. And they'll be happy we did. Everyone liked that. Lots of savage grins and appreciative words from the crew. We're about to drop on the light speed in this system called Irionu. I'm pretty bad from the New Republic's hyperspace blockade. Not enough food to go around down there. Word is the people are ready to overthrow the governors. So those guys are already in trouble. And they ain't gonna want any more. Perfect for us! Everything will start to happen fast once we show up! 
We've got to cut this close because of the way the emergencies are lined up. Storms, you all got your crews briefed? Everyone knows their job? Don't know about these other two jokers, Kossum, but my line knows their business good, Graven said, fingering a tusk. He was a Chevin, mostly just one huge head to look at him, with wrinkled gray skin and wisps of long blonde hair on his scalp. He looked slow and ponderous, and maybe he was, but Kossum had once seen him rip a security guard in half with his bare hands. They were robbing a bank in a tiny settlement on some backwater ice planet. Gravit had just grabbed the guy, and, <laughs> well, if Gossip's Tempest had a motto, it would be something like strength wins. And Gravin was the perfect example of that. Just ask the security guard. My people are in the two, boss, Delic said. They've been drilling them ever since you laid out the plan. I bet. Gravin said, and a few of his strikes chuckled. People too dumb to know that you didn't want Delix on your bad side. Kossif had known the woman for a long time. He even had a little thing with her a while back. He knew she thought she was ugly as sin, and that's why she kept spending all her money on fancy mechanical upgrades. She was making herself beautiful, one shiny new body part at a time. But all that metal didn't do her personality any favors. She was getting prettier, sure, but colder, too. Kossif had a feeling those chuckle-happy strikes and Gravin's crew might find themselves with their skulls crushed some night soon. Oh, well, not his problem. There were always more strikes. Affirmative, said Wetbub, giving a thumbs up from where he sat at the ship's primary computer console. Sometimes people figured Wetbub was called that because he was a Gungan, but that wasn't the only reason. Used to be, when he'd go on raids, he'd end up covered in blood, head to toe, like soaked. Happened enough times that people got to calling him that. And he never killed anyone who said it, so he must have liked it. Hard to tell what Wetbub did or didn't like sometimes. Bub was also a slicer, though. A damn good one. He'd been breaking into computer systems ever since he was a kid. And now he used that skill to do all sorts of ugly things in his personal time. Intrusive, cruel things. Also, not Kossip's problem. Let's do this! He said. The new elite fell out of hyperspace into the Iriadu system. Not much starship traffic on the scopes. <laughs> Not surprising. The planet hadn't gotten much in the way of fuel shipments recently. Not with the blockade on. The lack of traffic also meant the system's monitoring satellites had probably already spotted them. That was fine. They weren't here to hide. And if the Iriadoans wanted to send out a few patrol ships to take a poke at them, well, that was where Delix and Graven came in. Their gun crews were tight. Why, bub? <laughs> Go, Kossip said, pointing at his lieutenant. Bub set to work, accessing the system's communications network, pushing on through whatever access codes and security measures were in place, going higher and higher until he found what he was looking for. 
He tapped a few last buttons and gave another thumbs up. You're in, boss man, he said. A voice came over the bridge's speaker system, raspy and sibilant and cold. The voice of someone powerful who wasn't used to things happening that she hadn't ordered. Who is this? This is a restricted call network, said Mural Veen, current planetary governor of Iriadu. What the hell is that music? Oops, Cossip thought. He tapped a control, and the wreck punk volume dropped to a whisper. Hi there, Governor, Cossip said. I'm your new best friend. Silence from the other end of the line. She was waiting to see what he wanted. You might have seen a ship drop out of hyperspace out near the edge of the system. That's me. And all you need to know about us is that I can get through Chancellor So's hyperspace blockade when no other ship can do it. So that's the first thing you should keep in mind as this little chat moves along. I can do things no one else can. Let me guess. You sneaked through the blockade, and now you're going to offer to sell us food at some ridiculous rates? I don't respond well to extortion. That remains to be seen, ma'am, Kossif said, putting an emphasis on the last word, getting a little chuckle out of the Nihil on the bridge, all listening like this was the best hollow play they'd ever seen. But I'll tell you one thing, I'm offended that you think we're just ordinary smugglers. We're much more than that. Then who the hell are you? I told you! I'm your new best friend. Your savior, in fact. A silence. I might not know who you are, but I know where. My team's just pinpointed your location. I'm ending this call and sending out security cruisers to bring you into custody. I don't know your game, but you can explain it from inside a cell on Iriadu. If you resist, we'll blow you into atoms. You sure you want to do that? Kossif said, teasing it out. Absolutely. Goodbye. I don't have time for this. Actually, I agree. Three emergencies are headed for your system. They'll be here soon. We know where they'll happen and when. We can stop them for you if you pay up. What are you talking about? No one can predict the emergencies. And no one can fly in hyperspace in the outer rim either. I've heard enough. We're sending the cruisers. You can tell my interrogators what you know. If we see your ships heading our way, we'll leave. And you'll be the reason billions of your people die. Kossif grinned. The rounded-off smash high was getting better by the second. He felt like he was flying, pushed along by the crest of the drug's wave. Arms extended, unstoppable. He knew all along this was a good plan. He'd gone over the list of emergencies that Martian Rowe had given the Tempest Runners and seen this opportunity right away. It was
was an opportunity so good, in fact, that he had forgotten to mention to Martian or the other runners that he was intending to take advantage of it. Oops. <laughs> what a shame. No rule of three was gonna carve up this score. No way! Kossov realized he hadn't yet told this stuffy governor woman what he was asking for. He shook his head. He really needed to stay focused. Governor, it's easy! If you give me 50 million credits, no one has to die! I can stop the emergencies, and you'll save your people's lives. I can make it real simple for you, too. He lifted a finger, and Wetbob sent over the encrypted banking information that would allow Governor Veen to untraceably deposit the cash directly into a Darknet account controlled by Kossif. Not a Nihil account. This was one of Kossif's own. You're insane. The governor said. <laughs> You're skeptical. I'll get that. Here, let me help you out. Kossav lifted a second finger, and Wetbub sent over another short string of information. You've just received the coordinates for the first emergence. Not too far from my ship, as a matter of fact. We picked this spot for a reason. Check it out. Kossav held up a third finger and chopped his arm downward toward Graven, who nodded and turned to his gun crew at their weapon stations. Any moment now. Any moment, Kossif said. A piece of the doomed legacy run dropped out of hyperspace about 30 light seconds from the new elite. Exactly where Kossif had predicted it would. Thank you, Martian Row and the paths, and whatever mastery of hyperspace allowed him to know the routes all the fragments would take. It was about to earn Kossif millions of credits. He glanced at the targeting hollows projected on the vid wall on the bridge, which had already locked on to the fragment. It looked like a compartment, intact. He'd heard that some of these things had people on board. Settlers who had been aboard the ship before it disintegrated. Oh well. Not his problem either. Fire! Kossif said. Graben's team was very good. A spread of laser fire and torpedoes shot out from the new elite's weapons array, headed straight for the fragment. They all impacted at once, hard, and the compartment vaporized, vanishing from battle away on the bit wall. Perfect shot. Of course, they'd known what they were aiming at ahead of time, and had planned this all out. But still, it had to look impressive. <laughs> Kossif said, turning back to look out the front viewport, where, somewhere sunward, Governor Mural Veen was probably feeling a bit less sure of herself. Now you see them on the up and up. Two more emergencies coming. Next one's in 90 seconds. You have the account information? Pay up, or face the consequences! You bastard, Governor Veen said. Could be. You never knew my mom or my dad, though. <laughs> Don't think it matters. What matters are the choices you make in your life, not where you come from. Like the choice you need to make right now, Governor. The seconds ticked by. 
Kossif glanced over at Wetbub, who shook his head. No transfer yet. A bit disgusted, Kossif gave him a go-ahead gesture. Another set of coordinates was sent, with twenty seconds to spare before the emergence. The new elite wasn't close enough to this one to get there in time. This time, the emergence was going to happen, and nothing was going to stop it. But still, it could serve a purpose. You just got the coordinates for the second emergence, Kostov said. You could have stopped what happens next, Governor. Remember that. Another piece of the legacy run flashed back into real space, moving too fast for anyone to react. Iriadu had one primary export. Lomite, a mineral used in creating transparasteel, the alloy that formed the main component for starship viewscreens and portals. When Chancellor So put her blockade in place, the cargo transports heading off-system with full loads of Lomite were stuck with nowhere to go. Those transports had clustered together in an open space, not far from the nearest spot where it was safe to enter hyperspace, waiting for the moment the lanes reopened. The fragment ripped through one of them, causing it to detonate immediately. And the shockwaves took out four other vessels before they got their shields up. Ouch! There was a few hundred crew members easy. Not to mention all that low money. What'll that cost your system, Governor? Big money, I bet. Now you're in a worse spot than you were before. And remember... One more emergency is on the way. You've got about four minutes. And this time, it won't be hundreds dying. It will be billions. Even you, probably. You've got the account information. Don't wait too long. This is evil. You realize that, don't you? Kossov turned to face his tempest and rolled his eyes. More laughter. You're laughing, came the incredulous words over the calm. You're laughing? Yeah, governor. <laughs> it's funny, that's all. It's not evil. It's business. You're sending these emergencies somehow, aren't you? You're doing this. It's the only way it's possible. Does it matter? Time's wasting, Governor. Two minutes! Kossiv was getting a little nervous, truth be told. They needed to move, fast, to get in the path of the third emergence. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to stop it. And he figured it was important that they did stop it. Otherwise, well, this scam might not work so well next time, would it? wasn't even sure he'd go back to the Nihil after all this. Not with 50 million credits in his account, and an entire Tempest loyal to him, and a list of all the other emergencies he could exploit. <laughs> yep. Marcian Rowe was absolutely not his father. Just handing out valuable information like that? The man had this weird sense of loyalty to the Nihil. He thought they were something more than they were. The Nihil were a gang of criminals. And if there was one thing Kossif knew about criminals, it was this. You couldn't trust them. He was a perfect example. Ninety seconds. 
Governor, you're running out of time. You're monsters. So are you, if you don't save your people. Fine. The funds are being transferred now. He looked at Wetbub, who gave him another thumbs up. Gossip pointed at Delix, who fired up the engines for the burn that would put them in the path of the third emergence just as it appeared. Graven's gun crew got to work again, preparing the salvo that would destroy the final fragment and earn them their pay. You should know. Governor Veen's voice came over the speaker. I've been transmitting our conversation to Senator Noah, who was British along the entire outer rim. We've also sent along a scan of your ship, even matched its direct in databases. The new elite, owned by Custer of Medico. That's you, I presume. You got your payday, Mr. Medico, but I think your troubles are just beginning. Troubles? What troubles? We're saving lives! We're the heroes, Governor! <laughs> Kossib spoke for the benefit of the Nihil around him, listening to every word. But his stomach felt a little... Maybe he hadn't thought this through all the way. Oh well. Nothing to be done about it now. Go! He said, pointing at Delix. She nodded, and the ship jumps. The timing was tight. So tight that Graven's crew would have to fire the very second the burn ended. That was okay, though. They had time. But they didn't. The third emergence occurred just as expected. And yes, the legacy-run fragment was headed straight for Iriadu's inhabited moon. Estimated population 1.2 billion. Graven's team fired their weapons exactly as scheduled, right on time. Except the target wasn't there. The new elite had miscalculated its microburn and had hugely overshot the spot they were aiming for. They were nowhere near the emergence, and the laser blasts and torpedoes flashed out, hitting nothing. Kossip realized immediately. He shot a glance at Delix. She knew it too. She was looking right at him. Boss, I must have... I must have screwed up the math calculation. I don't know how it happened. Kossif had his suspicions. Her one organic eye was still glinting. A wash and a smash. And he knew for sure she hadn't taken that rounder. It didn't take much to mess up a nav calculation. And Delix was normally a champion at it because of her mechanical components. But this time... This time... The legacy-run fragment smashed into the moon. Everyone on the bridge saw it happen. It was projected up on the vid wall, clear as day. Big debris cloud mushrooming out from the surface. Shockwaves starting to roll across the little world. Lots of fire. And those dark clouds you got with the really huge explosions. Like a storm, kind of. A voice came over the calm, echoing out across the now utterly silent Nihil. No chuckles from them now. Just silence. You will pay for this, said Governor Miral Veen. Her voice may be the coldest thing Kasev had ever heard. This I vow. Vengeance. The people of Iriadu are hunters. 
You and all the monsters with you have now become our Tossip tapped a console, and the voice went silent. He looked at his Tempest and knew what they were thinking. 1.2 billion people. Oh well, not his problem. Get us out of here! Where? said Delix, her voice uncharacteristically subdued. Cause of thought. These people in Iriadu knew his name, knew his ship. He had their money, but he didn't like the sound of what that governor was saying. She didn't seem like the type to let things go. He'd need protection. He needed to be part of something bigger. He needed it. Back, he said, resigned. Back to the Norhill. Hetzal system. The rooted moon. Kaventar looked out across the plateau. The sight was breathtaking. 57,817 Navadroids, linked together into one massive array. All different models, all different sizes. From the latest compact self-powered units equipped with legs or other mobility attachments, allowing them to move from ship to ship to processor units ripped from the vessels in which they had been originally installed. The computing power varied greatly from droid to droid, but all in all, it was an impressive arrangement. If just getting the droids had been a challenge, aided by the heroic efforts of Secretary Lorilia, it had to be said he had requisitioned Navadroids from all over the galaxy, then assembling them into the array was nearly as hard. The idea was to set up a number of processors running in parallel, so various sections could address different parts of the problem at the same time. Kaven had designed the system from top to bottom, but linking it all up by himself would have taken months, time they didn't have. Beyond conceptualizing the thing in the first place and getting the droid components, he'd also needed to assemble a team of engineers trained in positronic architecture and network structuring. A lot of them. Hetzal had a few people with the necessary skills, but nowhere near enough. The Santecas had sent a dozen of their navulators, people who wore strange implants that wrapped around their shaven heads, allowing them to run calculations with droid-like precision that also retained the conceptual leaps organic minds could achieve. Incredibly useful, but still not enough to get the array built in any reasonable amount of time. Once again, Pulling together the required resources had been about using connections available through Senator Noir, Secretary Lorilia, and their own various allies. And they had come through and then some. Kaven had systems engineers on site from as far away as Bis and Kuat. We are all the Republic had never seemed more true. Kaven had no idea how much it cost in influence and actual capital to get this thing built. And he didn't really care, either. He just wanted to turn it on. The system had three primary nodes, each with its own subnodes. All three main elements were assigned a different part of the overall calculation. 
The first was designed to create a computer simulation of the original disaster using all available data. The second modeled all the known emergences thus far. And the third, by far the biggest and most complex, ran a particular algorithm designed to figure out where the next emergences would happen. That third node was the tricky one. The other two were just describing things that had already happened. The third one had to predict the future. And if I can do that, Kevin thought, I'm basically a Jedi. <laughs> but of course he wasn't. A few actual Jedi were standing just a little distance away. The pair he'd met a few times before, who had helped with the Santecas. Avar Chris and Elzar Man. They seemed like nice people, but honestly, he was nothing like them. Avar was all quiet confidence and utter competence, and Elzar looked like someone out of a hollow drama, with his olive skin and dark wavy hair. Just a beautiful man. Kebentar was probably closer to a droid, or one of the Navulators, though he didn't have to wear those weird implants, thankfully. He liked systems and rules, and the systems and rules behind those rules and systems. That's what everything was, really. Systems and rules. That statement was true of people, and it was true of droids. And it was true of the entire galaxy and everything in it. The deeper the systems you learned to access, or the rules you understood, the greater change you could create. That was what had helped him rise so quickly on Hetzal, all the way to a prime posting in the Ministry of Technology before he was 25. When he was still a kid, he figured out that four different crops were interacting in a complex sort of relationship, and that a routinely exterminated pest wasn't a pest at all but in fact, a symbiotic partner to the crops. If the plants were just allowed to occupy the same fields at the same time, rather than being kept separate, and the so-called vermin were allowed to live, not only would overall yields be higher, but the seeds and grain the crops produced would be of far better quality. Beyond even that, a sort of hybrid fruit would emerge twice a year that couldn't happen without the contributions of all four plants. That little project had gotten him all he really wanted. Access to bigger and better systems he could spend his time trying to understand. The Hetzalian authorities gave him increasingly important assignments, from developing crop rotation algorithms to modeling weather, all of which he found deeply engaging and rewarding. The only thing he found frustrating was how slow it could seem. He couldn't just dig into anything he wanted, even with his high-level role in the system's Ministry of Technology. There were still many things he could not access without permission. That was his choice, though. Kaven knew he could be one hell of a slicer, breaking into computer cores of all types, but he didn't hold with that. He believed in law, and he believed in the Republic. He had decided long ago that the only way he would ever work with the really significant systems was if he could earn those privileges through his skill and dedication. Well, now that moment seemed to have arrived. It didn't get much bigger than what he was about to try to do. He, Kaventar, was going to slice 
hyperspace. A soft, cool breeze touched his face, drifting across the plateau overlooking the array. A good sign. Kevin glanced at the other observers standing not far away, chatting quietly among themselves. If he'd had his preference, the first test of his machine would have happened in private, in case something went wrong. But it was all too important. Time was too short, and too much had been invested in creating the array. Many people, powerful people, had chosen to back Kevin's idea, and they all wanted to be present to see whether that idea was worth the damn. Senator Noar and his aide Jenai Wataro, Secretary Lorelia, Minister Eka, the two Jedi, of course, who were chatting with Marlo and Vela Santeca, who had, honestly, been incredibly helpful. Beyond supplying the twelve navulators, they had also provided hyperspace modeling tools far beyond anything Kaven would have been able to access on his own. He'd signed all sorts of agreements with their company's legal department, saying that he'd never use the tech for anything else. But that was no problem. Actually, he thought he might see if the Santecas wanted to work with him after this was all over. Hetzel was his homeworld, but he was ready to move on. The planet was a system too, and he'd sliced it about as well as he could. Onward to bigger and deeper. Of course, if he couldn't make the array work, None of those exciting possibilities would happen. If you said you would try to do something, people heard that as you would do something. And if you didn't achieve the goal, then they thought you had failed, and blamed you for trying it all. It wasn't exactly fair, especially because predicting the future with a massive computer array made from wired-up droid brains was basically impossible. But that was how the system called society worked. And Kaventar would never be powerful enough to change that set of rules. His situation was binary. Succeed or fail. He'd done everything he could to make sure it was the former, and that was all. He lifted a comlink and spoke. You guys got the last batch of droids linked up? A crackle. This many droids in one spot was causing interference. You could taste it in the air, like touching your tongue to new metal. One more left, came the response from Chief Inman of the Republic Defense Coalition. Petty Officer Inman, until recently, promoted based on his heroic efforts during the Legacy Run disaster. He and his shipmate, Peoples, then an ensign, now a lieutenant, had decided to stay in system after the disaster to help however they could, as a way of honoring the sacrifice of their captain, Bright, who had died during a rescue attempt on a solar array. Kaven liked that the two officers were contributing their skills, thought it was noble and good. More important, Inamin had the necessary engineering training to be particularly useful here on the rooted moon, and to supervise peoples, even though the lieutenant was technically his superior officer. Peoples didn't seem to mind, and had even offered to swap ranks with Inamin. The chief declined, after letting out a heavy sigh. In any case, the duo was currently completing the wiring for the subnode tasked to model the fifth emergence. Privately, in a way he would never, ever voice, Kaven wished there had been a few more emergences. Every single one was a data point, and so far there had been twenty-nine. Not bad. A pretty good set. But the more information his machine had to draw on, the better. 
he wouldn't get a second chance at this, for many reasons. Mostly for one reason, in fact. Something he had purposely decided not to tell the kind people who had helped him gather all these rare and valuable machines for his array. Kaven sent a furtive glance at Jeff O'Larillia, the Republic's transportation secretary, not far away on the plateau and deep in conversation with Senator Izet Noir, his long face uncharacteristically animated. Lorelia had pulled in incredible favors to bring so many Navatroids together, and on such short notice. The Outer Rim was still in its hyperspace quarantine, much to Senator Noir's intense frustration. But Secretary Lorelia's requisition had taken so many Navadroids out of circulation that it wasn't just the Outer Rim experiencing shortages. Shipping all over the Republic was beginning to be affected. Yes, if Kaven's algorithm performed correctly, they would know where the emergences would happen next and could end the blockade. But that was a big if. He only had 57,000 droids, when the number he actually needed was more like twice that. The calculations he had to run would now take at least double the time, even pushing his system to the limit. That much stress on the machine for that long would generate... Well, he had his doubts about how many of these hugely precious electronic brains would make it through the process. That was the essential fact he had chosen not to share with Secretary Lorelia. The array, once powered on, would be hungry. And what it ate was Navadroids. But this was the solution he had. He had to try, even though he knew what would happen to him if he failed. That's what good people did. Peoples, get your toe out of there! What do you think you're... Oh. Oh, that's actually a pretty good idea, I guess. Chief Inaman said over the comlink, his voice a little distant, as if he had turned to yell at someone on his side of the transmission. And then he came back, strong and loud. We're good here, Mr. Char. Linkage complete. Thank you, Chief. And you can call me Kaven. Uh, clear the area and pull out any other teams you see out there. Uh, get off the plateau. Back up here on the observation platform. Huh? Why? Uh, just pull everyone back. <laughs> All right? Kaven lifted a data pad, the central control unit for the entire array. He shot off a quick prayer to the Vine Matron, patron saint of the area on Hetzal Prime where he had been raised, and tapped the single button that turned the whole blasted thing on. Farther along the plateau, Senator Izet Noir fanned his face as the huge network array of Navidroids hummed into life. It sounded like a hive of insects. Not even a sound, really. More like a sensation. Just below the level of true perception. He was also praying, but not to the Vine Matron. More of an unfocused, please, 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 muttered under his breath. All over the Outer Rim, worlds were on the verge of revolt. While the Chancellor had authorized aid shipments to worlds suffering from lack of hyperspace transit, it was still far from life as usual. And the occasional shipment of emergency rations wasn't the way to quell unrest. If this... Kaven Tar's insane droid scheme didn't work. 
He'd have to go to Chancellor So and beg her to reopen the hyperlanes, regardless of the danger. At a certain point, she would have to see that the damage being done to the people of the Rim outweighed the risk of another legacy-run-style crisis. Can you believe all this? Noar said to Janai Wataro, his closest aide going on ten years. She was Shagrian, with blue skin and thick, horn-tipped tentacles curling out from the sides of her head and draping down across her chest. Wataro was essential to his work in endless ways. Every politician could use a Shagrian aide, Noar believed. What do you mean, Senator? Wataro said. Noar gestured vaguely out at the gigantic droid array spread out on the plateau before them. All this, Wataro. Use your eyes. We're going to such a massive expense, and there's no guarantee that this will even work. I don't see any reason why we can't just reopen the hyperlanes. And you know what? He continued, turning to her. Someone else out there clearly already has the ability to predict emergencies based on what happened at Iriatu. Wataro nodded. Why are we doing this stupid droid thing when Admiral Konara and the RDC should just be hunting down whoever tried to extort the Iriaduans? Noir went on. That Kishav person, I think that was the name Governor Veen said, we find them. We ask them where the next emergencies will be. Done. Easy. Noar frowned out at the array again. The initial hum had deepened into an unpleasant buzz. Not a sound, but a feeling deep in his bones. I respect the Chancellor's choices, but I wish he would consider a different approach, he said. Perhaps you should run, Senator. Janai said. She always said this, and he knew it was a sort of passive-aggressive thing, like she was pointing out his hypocrisy in criticizing the Chancellor when he never actually ran for the office. Maybe I will, Taro. Maybe I just will, he said. Wait and see. A large screen was set up on the observation deck above the array, currently displaying a rough approximation of the Legacy Run disaster, accelerated to ten times the actual speed at which it had occurred. Kaventar, the Jedi, the Senator, and the other Republic and local officials watched solemnly as the events played out. Many of them had been there while it happened. People had died. Not as many as could have, but still... This was a tragedy, and no one spoke as they watched. Kevin looked down at his data pad, which provided him with another essential information set. The status of the Navadroid array. All 57,708 processors running incredibly high-level calculations at the very limit of their capability. Kevin could, with a few taps, expand any of the three main nodes to look at subnodes, smaller groupings, even individual droids. The array was designed to work like a massive brain, with neurons, nerve cells, all of it. The readouts gave him the speed at which each node, unit, and individual droid was running. Useful, but not the primary data points upon which Kaven was focused. No, he was concerned with another figure 
also displayed at the far end of each long chain of data. The heat. This many processors running together at full capacity was basically one enormous oven. Kevin had planned for it as best he could. That was why the array was outside, in the wind and the relatively cool temperatures of the rooted moon. He could have built it in space, but heat didn't dissipate through vacuum. It would have been even worse out there. Many of the droids had internal cooling units. That was the source of the hum rising off the plateau, now getting louder, more insistent. Kaben didn't need to check his data pad to know the temperatures were rising and fast. Fortunately, the observers all seemed to be riveted by the events unfolding on the large display screen. Every brave rescue of legacy run survivors, every tragic death, every hairbreadth escape. Kaben, despite the burgeoning issues with the array, took a moment to appreciate the enormity of what the Jedi and the Republic teams had accomplished here. The Hetzal system should be gone. It was astonishing that he was still standing here, on the surface of the rooted moon. He shook his head, watching the simulation as the final fragment sped toward Hetzal's sun, the tank of liquid Tabana that had almost destroyed the entire system. He remembered these moments clearly. He had been certain he would be dead in moments. Knew it, down to his bones. And that hadn't happened. The Jedi had come together to move a gigantic piece of metal that did not want to be moved in precisely the right way, in perfect coordination, though millions of kilometers from one another. It was impossible, yet somehow they had done it. Kevin watched it happen again, the fragments skipping away, just missing one of the system's suns. It seemed so simple. So easy on the screen. He knew it had taken everything the Jedi had. Some of them had even died in the attempt. They had succeeded. He could not fail now. The simulation of the Legacy Run disaster was complete, and a second node kicked into life. This one modeling the first emergence. The display showed the seven fragments appear in the Abdalis system, and the impact of the last on the planet. The Watchers stood in silence. Another tragedy, but this one not prevented by a miraculous Jedi intervention. Kaven, however, had stopped looking at the screen. He could not take his eyes from his data pad. The temperatures were rising faster than he had anticipated. For his algorithm to work, the systems had to continuously model everything that had happened. Every detail, every fragment, every trajectory, all at once. As each new emergence was added to the simulation, the load grew greater. It felt like heat was already rising off the plateau. Surely that was his imagination. Kevin wiped his sleeve across his forearm. Damp. No, not his imagination. The array was running hot, and they still had almost 30 emergences to model. Senator Noir shifted uncomfortably. He turned to his aide, gesturing out at the air above the droid array, which was shimmering. Heat haze rising into the early morning sky. What's he said. Is that how this is supposed to work? I... I'm not sure, 
she replied, taking a cloth from her tunic and blotting little green dots of sweat that had appeared on her forehead. Kevin was worried about Node 5. Secretary Lorelia had done his best, but obviously not everyone was willing to give up their best state-of-the-art navy droids, no matter how noble the cause. A good number of the droids in the array were older models, or even retired from active service. They could still do the job, but not as well or as fast as the others. He had distributed the older droids throughout the array in an attempt at load balancing, but inevitably, some sections ended up with a few more of the less capable machines. Note 5 was one of those. The heat was rising quickly, and it was just a matter of time until... A shower of sparks shot up from the array, and Kaven didn't have to look at it to know what was coming from Node 5. One of the older Navidroids had blown its circuits, the heat essentially frying its computational matrix to sludge. Blast it! He said. What's happening, Tar? He heard Senator Noar call over. Kevin didn't answer. He didn't have time. If Node 5 went down, then the whole simulation would have to start over. And he knew they probably wouldn't let him do that. This was most likely his only shot. Fortunately, he had anticipated the problem, at least to some degree. A phalanx of kill droids floated off to one side of the array all equipped with cooling units, able to send out blasts of wintry air wherever they might be needed. Kevin had kept them in reserve until now, but it was clear that the time had come. He tapped his data pad, and several of the pill droids zoomed over to Node 5, shooting out cold air from their vent attachments that immediately brought the temperature down. Fine. It was fine. As long as the pill droids' coolant held out, and as long as he didn't lose too many more Navidroids. 57,712 now. And he really shouldn't have even tried this with less than 75,000. Node 7 was starting to run hot, and Kevin had learned his lesson. He sent another few pill droids in that direction to cool it down before anything went wrong. This can work, he thought. I can do this. Node 14 came online modeling the 19th emergence, and it overloaded immediately. Hard! Fifty droids at once, shooting the same set of sparks Node 5 had just produced. Maybe an error in the linkage. Maybe that was just a particularly complex part of the simulation. No! Kevin shouted. He was dimly aware of voices in his vicinity, asking questions, offering advice, concern. He couldn't spare time for them, not even a moment. The array was on the verge of a cascading failure. Twenty pill droids whipped over to Node 14, half of what he had left, and they were barely two-thirds of the way through the simulation. They're going to blame me, he thought. They're going to say it was my fault. I was just trying to help. I did my best. I did my... A hand touched his arm, and Kaven jumped. He looked. It was the Jedi, Avar Chris. A few steps behind her, the other one, Elzar Man. They always seem to be together. Be calm, she said. And he was. He felt better just having her there. What's happening? Avar asked. The array's producing too much heat, but I can't stop the simulation now. Either it runs to the end, or there was no point to any of this. 
We haven't learned anything new yet, either. If we stop now, it's all waste. Another rain of sparks. Note 11. 382 droids gone, all at once. 57,285 left. Kevin sent the rest of his pill droids to cool down that section, which would work for a bit. But a glance at the data pad showed him at least four more nodes in serious trouble. Nodes 3 and 8 blue. 53,412. If they got below 50,000, it was over. No amount of reshuffling and load balancing would create processing power where it didn't exist. The breeze died, and that little bit of additional cooling it provided vanished. There was nothing more he could do. It was over. Avar Chris continued to use the Force to help the young man hold back his panic. It wasn't easy. Kavantar wanted to spiral out of control. He felt guilt, shame, frustration. None of which were fair or earned, probably. But emotions were rarely logical. She looked at Elzar. Any ideas? He needs to cool everything down? That's what he said. Okay, Elzar said, his tone thoughtful. I might have an idea. I've never tried it, but the theory is sound. You'll be able to sense what I'm doing. Anything you can do to help would be appreciated. I can't imagine I'll be able to do this alone. Elzar seated himself on the ground, folding his legs together, then lifted his arms and closed his eyes. Avar reached out, trying to follow what he was doing. He was calling on the Force, but to do what? She suspected this was one of his refinements. Ideas were constantly popping into his head. Ways the Force might be used to do new things. New ways the light side might answer his call. He failed all the time, but she found his commitment to bringing new ideas to the Jedi inspiring. To Elzar Man, what the Jedi were was nowhere near as interesting as what they could be. Avar listened to the song of the Force, and suddenly she understood what Elzar was trying to do. Impossible, she said to him. A concept basic enough to be conveyed through the very loose emotional linkage the Force could give them. He smiled, not opening his eyes. Help me, he sent back. Elzar Man was talking to the air. It was hot here at the surface, above the furiously working droids but much cooler high above. The hot air was rising, as it liked to do, but slowly, not fast enough. He asked the Force to help with that, and it responded, though sluggishly. Air was heavier than it looked. Then, an easing, and he knew Avar was with him. That was good. Everything was easier when she was at his side. Literally, in fact. He opened his eyes briefly to see that she had knelt next to him, her forearms resting loosely on her thighs, her palms facing upward, and her eyes closed, her face tilted up toward the sky. A small patch of heated air rose higher, both Jedi creating currents to waft it into the sky above the plateau. This did very little to cool the Navidroid array, 
though that was not really the idea here. As the hot air rose, it reached cooler zones higher in the atmosphere. The heated air carried moisture with it, evaporated from the surface. Those tiny molecules of water found one another, touched, connected. Elzar and Avar did it together, nudging the air, helping it do what it wanted to do anyway, helping the individual bits of water become one. Elzar felt something like exultation, not pride, that was not the Jedi way, but joy in a difficult job being done well, by two people connecting on a deep level without any need to explain to each other what they were doing. They had always been this way, ever since their Padawan days. Their connection made many things better, but if he was being honest with himself, it also made some things worse. The two Jedi worked. Elzar felt exhaustion creeping over him. He and Avar were only working with a small region of the atmosphere a relatively tiny volume of air, shaping it, molding it, trying to bring it to a critical mass that would let the moon's weather systems do the rest of the work, essentially creating a seed. But it was still grueling. Sweat poured from his body, and he knew that was only partially due to the heat rising off the array. Every breath became an effort, and his chest felt like it was being pressed in a vice as if the air moving above was being sucked directly from his lungs. But Elzar Man did not stop, nor did Avar Chris. And slowly, something began to appear in the sky above the plateau. Huge, gradually darkening as the moments passed. A cloud. 51,018 Navadroids remained. And while Kevin had managed to keep the simulation intact, the vid screen was now playing out the 31st emergence, which meant they were just minutes away from being able to move past modeling things that had happened to projecting things that would happen. But there was no way the array would last that long. Every single remaining droid was in the red, even the most advanced models. Kevin was maneuvering the pill droids above the entire array in big, sweeping arcs, trying to chill the whole thing at once. It was working to some extent, buying them additional seconds, but his datapad also displayed their coolant reserves, and most were down to single digits. At this point, all he could hope for was that they might be able to predict an emergence or two. Even a few might help prevent a future tragedy. They almost certainly wouldn't be able to find the Legacy Run's flight recorder system which was obviously the secondary goal of all this. It would help them understand what had happened here, and hopefully prevent it from ever occurring again. But you took the good where you found it, and so Kaven kept using the systems he had left, pushing them as far as he could, even as another few hundred Navadroids burned out and died. Something hit the back of his neck, startling him. It was soft. Maybe an insect, or... Another impact, this time on the back of his hand, as it moved rapidly across his datapad surface. And he realized what was happening. It's... it's raining, he heard Senator Noir say. And suddenly, 
with a rumble of thunder. It was rain pouring down over the array. Steam hissed up from the overstressed navadroids, and Kaboom had to swipe the side of his hand across his data pad to clear the water so he could read it. Temperatures were dropping rapidly across every node. The navadroids were hardened for operation in vacuum. A bit of water wouldn't hurt them. Clouds of steam drifted up from the array, and Kaven turned to look first at the Jedi, Avar Chris and Elzar Man, who knelt side by side, arms lifted, eyes closed, trembling with sustained effort as the rain soaked their tunics. The Jedi looked as if they were trying to lift a starship with their bare hands. The sun was still bright off the plateau, and the light shone through the rain, causing a glinting spectrum to surround them both. Beyond the straining Jedi, the vid screen finally displayed something new—a zone of uninhabited space where the thirty-fourth emergence would occur. There had only been thirty-three emergences to date. The system worked. It was predicting the location of future emergences. And as long as the rain held up, it would remain stable. Kaven realized that he hadn't failed after all. He, Kaventar, the farmer's son from Hetzal Prime, had sliced hyperspace. What a strange galaxy this was. Kaboom! Did you feel that? It was like a bomb just erupted in our backyard. We're not just on a comet, folks. We're blazing through the High Republic like a fireball with a turbo booster. We just zoomed through Part 9 like a meteor with a one-way ticket to awesomeness. I'm so pumped up, I feel like I got a rocket in my shoes. Imagine this. We're like a spaceship engine, all revved up and roaring to leap into hyperspace. Every new part of this story is a wild ride through star-studded skies, introducing us to the most incredible, jaw-dropping, and mind-blowing twist. It's like weaving through the cosmic carnival of wonders. But now it's time for the moments that we've all been eagerly anticipating. The marvelous quote of this episode. And it comes to us from Roy T. Bennett. He said, great goals make great people. People cannot hit what they do not aim for. Now let's break down this great quote. First part, great goals make great people. This means when you set big important goals for yourself, it helps you become a better person. Why? Because big goals push you to work harder, learn new things and stay focused. It's like when you decide to build a really cool Lego set. You got to plan it, work on it bit by bit, and solve the problems along the way. In the end, not only do you have an awesome Lego set, but you have also become more patient and creative. Now the second part, people cannot hit what they do not aim for. This is pretty straightforward. It says you cannot achieve something if you don't set it as a goal first. Think of it like playing darts. If you don't aim at the dartboard, there's no way you're going to hit it, right? Same thing with life. If you don't decide on what you want, like getting a better job or saving up for a car, you're never going to drive that new car to your new job. So how can you use this in real life? Simple. Start by setting goals. It doesn't have to be huge, just something that matters to you. Then work towards it a little bit every day. Keep your eye on your goal, just like aiming at the dartboard. And remember, the bigger the goal, the more you will grow as a person while you are chasing it. That's the beauty of it. Big goals aren't just about getting stuff. They're about making you stronger, smarter, and a better person. So set your sights high, aim carefully, and go for it. And that's a wrap for this episode. I hope you had a blast diving into part nine of Light of the Jedi, and I hope you will join me for part 10, which is coming your way in a few rotations of the sun. So until then, may the force be with you.
Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quentin McDaniel and was distributed by Swaycast Networks. The High Republic Light of the Jedi was read to you by Jason Odega. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.